0: The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. I would like to start today's episode by reading a paragraph from the introduction to the important new book, Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. Green energy is headed for a breakdown. The 2022 world energy crisis may be just the first of several transnational energy shocks that demonstrate the futility of a renewable future. Europe's dependence on wind, solar, and imported natural gas, combined with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, resulted in a step-function drop in living standards and the severe destruction of the industry on the continent. Energy shortages and astronomical costs may plague Europe for a decade. Green-minded states in the U.S. and provinces in Australia may next be those that are going to be subjected to power system failures and escalating costs as renewable energy is deployed. Well, I'm happy to say that I have Steve Gorham, the author of the book, the introduction to which I just read, or at least part of it, as my guest today. Steve is executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America, He's also a public speaker, a frequent guest on radio and TV, and an independent columnist. He's the author of four books on energy, climate change, and sustainable development. His new book, Green Breakthrough, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure, was released last month. Steve holds a master's degree in electrical engineering, and that's especially relevant to today's talk, from the University of Illinois, and an MBA from the University of Chicago, which is also super relevant. He has more than 30 years experience at Fortune 100 and private companies in engineering and executive roles. So welcome to the show, Steve.
1: Hey, Tom, great to join you again.
0: Yeah, great. Well, let's get right into it. Aren't human CO2 emissions causing hurricanes to be more frequent and stronger as we keep hearing in the headlines?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, just a bunch of misinformation. It is remarkable today. Probably if you hear something about climate change, in the news media, it's probably incorrect. Yeah, and and we recently had Hurricane Adalia that came ashore uh, two months ago in the Panhandle of Florida, and it was a Category Three, very strong storm. And we also had uh, Hurricane Lee that came up and hit, I think it was Nova Scotia and Canada as a tropical oh, storm, God. wasn't quite a hurricane by then. But uh, the headlines, of course, ring. You know, we have uh, uh, NPR, we have CNN, USA Today and all these folks that talk about how these storms are becoming uh, more frequent and stronger, but that's not really what the data shows from our own US government. We have had uh, just about 300 hurricanes since 1850 that have come ashore in the United States. And uh, for example, in the 20th century, we had 170 of those, 59 of those were category three plus hurricanes. Uh, had winds stronger than 111 miles per hour. We've also had uh, a dozen years when we had uh, two strong hurricanes come ashore. Uh, so this this is not something new. Matter of fact, this year we've had one hurricane come ashore. We'll probably get another one before the end of hurricane season. But uh, you can also look at the hurricane landfalls uh, every year. We Those have actually been declining Declined? now for- For the last 100 years, just a little bit, flat to declining. Uh, We typically have about two hurricanes uh, per year that come ashore in the United States, but that has been on a slight downtrend, again, according to data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And so there really is no evidence that these storms are getting stronger or more frequent.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess the science would support that because Tim Ball was saying, late tim ball sadly he's passed away now but he said that weather is driven by the difference in pressure between latitudes and if global warming warms the arctic first which is what they forecast then there would be less of a temperature gradient across latitudes so i mean even the theory sounds wrong
1: (laughs) absolutely right Uh, and it is true the uh we've had very little we've had a little bit of global warming in the last 180 years, a little more than a degree Celsius, but almost no no warming near the equator. Uh, some in the temperate zones, mid United States, and more warming in the Arctic. And so the as you say, the the temperature differential has decreased, and mm-hmm. that's what that's what drives these storms. So the the physics and the theory say that storms should be getting uh, more moderate rather than stronger.
0: Yeah, and they are. (laughs) That's the point. So the theory actually matches the data. If you take that approach, you know, it's interesting, my sister and brother in law, they just moved to Halifax uh, and Nova Scotia, and they just experienced their first hurricane, (laughs) lost power and everything else. I mean, sure, that's where the money should be going is adaptation, like burying cables underground, getting ready for storms, not trying to stop them.
1: Well, you're right. The the only sensible policy for climate change is adaptation. If you want to uh, uh, help guard against sea level rise, you do what Netherlands has done for the last three or 400 years. You build seawalls, you build islands. Uh, If you want to uh, protect the population against hurricanes in the Caribbean, you build strong concrete structures. You try and raise the the income of the people there, so that they build buildings that are that are more sturdy. If you want to help people with heat waves in Central Africa, you get low cost energy to those folks. Yeah. Uh, Central Central Africa, the the average summer temperature gets as high as eighty six degrees Fahrenheit, about thirty degrees Celsius. And uh, you know, you only have one in sixteen people in, in those areas have air conditioning, and forty percent of the people don't even have fans. Oh wow! So, so, which, which you know, thinking you can drive electric cars uh, to uh, stop carbon dioxide emissions, to stop the ice caps from melting, to to stop ocean rise, that's really not. That's a very tenuous uh, uh, theory all the way along. Adaptation is the be- best direct policy.
0: Yeah, you, you might be interested that the late Tad Murty, he also passed away recently. He was a specialist in oceanography and. He was a pretty amazing character, actually. But regardless, he said that all, all along the coast of the Bay of Bengal in India, they have multi-story storm shelters, and they're every kilometer along the coast. So no one has to walk more than half a kilometer to get to a storm shelter, and then they go up above the waves, and they're massive concrete structures. And he huh. said that in the United States, he said, generally speaking, people evacuate with what he called horizontal evacuation, get in their car and... <laughs> drive like crazy. He said, yeah. instead, they should be building multi-story storm shelters. So as he put it, they have vertical evacuation. Wouldn't that make sense to actually build some storm shelters in areas that, you know, have a dense population, especially a poor population?
1: Well, it might. But again, uh, the fatalities from storms in the wealthy nations is down uh, mm-hmm. many, many times. Matter of fact, even globally. Fatalities from uh, weather events is is down about ninety eight percent since the early, the early nineteen hundreds, just because we have better warning systems. As you say, they're doing things in India to to put in shelters and and uh, many other things that are going on. So, uh, despite the fact that we've had a little bit of global warming in the last hundred and twenty years, uh, fatalities from storms are down all over the world. Yeah, uh, which is which is really good uh, policy. But again, that is. That is based on adaptation, not on saying we're all going to put in, uh, we're all going to change our light bulbs. That's not going to have any effect.
0: I got to have you repeat the temperature change since the 1800s. What was the number again? Because remember, we're in a climate emergency.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. The the earth is burning, as some people have said. Well,
0: Boiling, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we've... Well, we've only had thermometers uh, about uh, 140 years since about 1880, and you're right. Uh, we've only had about a degree uh, Celsius of warming, about two degrees Fahrenheit, in the last 140 years. And the interesting thing is that we do not live in historically warm times. Scientists use a thing called proxies uh, to go back further, and and proxies are chemical changes that are like uh, that change like temperature. Uh, some of those things are, are changes in, in tree ring widths, uh, in the ratio of uh, oxygen isotopes in ice and in plankton and seashells and those sorts of things. But if you look at those data, you find that uh, those proxies show that it was warmer a thousand years ago than it is today during the medieval warm period. Uh, they used to have trees in southwest Greenland. Today they only have scrub grasses. Two thousand years ago when the Romans conquered uh, the Mediterranean at that time they were growing olives in what was to become Germany. Uh, four thousand years ago, eight thousand years ago it was uh, there's much much evidence that shows it was warmer than today. Today's climate is not historically warm. And I'll give you and another it,
0: go it, ahead. it's good. it's good the temperature we want the temperature to be warmer, right?
1: <laughs> we do. I'll give you another little bit of evidence from from an ocean of evidence. Uh, there's a glacier in central Switzerland called the Rhone Glacier. Maybe some of your listeners have been there. Uh, it's, a, it's a mountain wall, the mountain wall wide glacier. Uh, the Rhone River, it's the source of the Rhone River, which flows out of it into France and then down into the Mediterranean. But that glacier has been receding for more than a century. But every time it pulls back, they find things under the glacier, such as wagon wheels and horse bridles, and they find wood that's 4,000 years old. Uh, One scientist, Dr. Christian Schluter, said he estimated that that area had been ice-free for 6,000 of the last 10,000 years. So where where we have a glacier today, for much of the last 10,000 years, there was no ice. Uh, This is just a small bit of evidence saying it was naturally warmer many times in the last 10,000 years, long before we had power plants or sport utility vehicles.
0: Mm -hmm. And also, isn't the Antarctic... Growing in some places,
1: the Antarctic has been pretty flat. Yeah, this the satellite data shows temperatures have been flat for uh, at least 150 years or so. Matter of fact, there's a there's a weather station right at the South Pole that the United States has manned uh, uh, since about 1950, and actually it's the it, it's they're using the third building now because the first two buildings have been covered by ice. <laughs> The, wow. the the ice uh, grows about eight inches every year in, in right on the South Pole, and it never gets above freezing. It never melts, and it, it snows, and it just keeps growing. And so you have eight inches every year, eight inches every year. The last station they built, they put on stilts. Uh, it's it's like five or six buildings that are on stilts, and they they can jack these stilts up over the accumulating snow to prolong the life of the buildings. Ah. Huh. But, wow. but so a lot of scientists are kind of puzzled if we have this this carbon dioxide going uh, uniformly throughout the atmosphere and it's warming the planet. Why isn't it warming in Antarctica? And, and the answer is that uh, because this, this uh, what's going on in, in Antarctica is driven by natural factors, not man-made emissions from carbon dioxide.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting. I often see glaciologists point to a specific glacier and say, oh, it's retreating. And this is evidence of global warming. My answer is always, well, no, it's not evidence of global anything. It's evidence that your glacier (laughs) is retreating. I mean, surely you can't (laughs) generalize based on what what just a couple of glaciers are.
1: Well, it is evidence of warming usually when glaciers retreat, but it doesn't tell you what's causing the warming. Another example is the Mendenhall Glacier uh, near Juneau. Mm. Uh, uh, Central Western Canada, Juneau, and our in that long finger from Alaska coming down. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, environmental organizations were putting up posters in airports uh, showing pictures of the Mendenhall Glacier way back about 1880 and, and today. And in 1880, the glacier was huge, and today it is much recessed. But about uh, uh, t- 10 years ago, a bunch of scientists from Southwest Alaska University went down underneath the glacier into ice caves. Mm-hmm. And what they, what they found was remarkable. They found all this wood, all these tree stumps that were still in the ground. They had roots still in the ground. They had diameters as foot in the diameter. They found many, many such uh, tree stumps under the glacier in the ice caves and they radiocarbon dated them and they were a thousand years old. And so the, the evidence shows that a thousand years ago there was a forest where today we have the Mendenhall Glacier, indicating mm. that it was naturally warmer a thousand years ago than it is today. Mm, but yeah, uh, just another piece of uh, glacial evidence. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Pointing out that we, we do not live in abnormally warm times uh, and, and that uh, nature has uh, uh, probably isn't controlling the climate and, and was controlling the warm temperatures in the past not our
0: emissions. Mm -hmm. Well, talking about temperatures, I mean, we're told that we're in the era of global boiling. You know, (laughs) aren't global temperatures at an all-time high? Or is that just headlines? (laughs) Well, no, they're not at an
1: all-time high. Again, it was warmer in the past. But even in the last century, uh, there's a site you can go to at at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I think it's called State Extremes. And for every state, they have the record warm temperature, the record cold temperature. I think they have record uh, snowfall and precipitation. But if you look at those warm temperatures, the first thing you realize is that most of our 50 state high temperature records were set, uh, matter of fact, the biggest decade was the 1930s. Uh, We had uh, 23 of the state 50 state high temperature records were set in the 1930s. And 36 of the 50 uh, records uh, were set prior to 1970, mm, wow. and, and and you know temperature records thermometers usually pretty accurate, and so uh, nevertheless we have people running around saying, "Wow, we have this these boiling temperatures now, and it's crazy," but it was naturally warmer in the past, no doubt about it.
0: It, it kind of seems fishy to me when the best database in the world, which this probably is for extreme temperatures over a significant area where it shows no warming and the global temperature is supposedly going up. I mean, that kind of suggests that a lot of the other temperatures that are measured throughout the world may be wrong.
1: Yeah, the US generally has the best temperature record, but you're you're right. And if you look at it, we had had warming from 1880 to about 1940, and then it cooled for about uh, 35 years from 1940 uh, and by the way, 1940 is close to that uh, that decade of the of the 1930s when we had all those records broken, and then it cooled about 1975, and then, and that was even while carbon dioxide was rising. Since 1975, we have had gentle warming up until about now, uh, but it is very possible we would go into a couple decades of cooling the next two or three decades. Uh, we just have to see what uh, Mother Nature is going to do. And predicting future temperatures is a very tenuous kind of a thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, wasn't there an expression recently? One of the scientists said that forecasting is ex- predicting the future is extremely difficult. And yeah, that was, <laughs> that, <especially laughs> that, was
1: a, that was Yogi Berra, the Yankee, oh, the, oh, the Yankee's catcher. Yogi Berra, the Yankees catcher. It's always what difficult did, to predict the future. <laughs>
0: oh yeah. Make forecasts, especially about the future. <laughs>
1: yeah, well,
0: yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, I would suggest that when you take a look at this this map you sent me, and I'll include it in the show description when it goes to podcasts, yeah. Um, I would suggest that this is much more significant. These statewide high-temperature records is much more significant than individual towns, which right. are huge, hugely influenced by the urban heat island, because in the last year, We've heard all these temperature records being set in different cities. But yes. really, isn't the state a more significant record?
1: Well, I think you're right. And, and a lot of, I think we have a lot more thermometers out there today, and many of them didn't have temperatures in the 30s or 40s or 50s. And so, you know, Jonesville had now has a record high. Well, wow, okay, that's nice. But maybe they weren't taking temperatures 40 years ago. They don't have the same kind of record. Uh, so you're right. We also have an urban heat island effect uh, which you mentioned, and what happens is when you build cities and you build highways and you build airports and you build uh, concrete structures, uh, they tend to absorb heat from the sun in the day and exhaust it in the uh, in the evening, and they tend to raise the local average temperature versus just having fields. Mm. And so we do have an effect. On my first book, Climatism, I remember I had a graph that had three different graphs graphs of temperature counties in California. And you see that the rural counties had a much less rise over the last 30 years than the urban counties. The urban counties all had temperature rising at a much faster rate. And of course that can't be a climate effect that has to be the effect of the the building structures. And so uh, we do in a local area, people certainly do influence temperatures but the evidence does show that on a global scale that that uh, uh, human structures and human emissions are a very small effect uh, compared to nature.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. If we look at a nearby town here in Ottawa, we find that it is warm twice as slow or Ottawa has warmed twice as fast as this nearby small town. So yeah. wouldn't that suggest that because we're in the same climate area, these our ta- little town in Ottawa, wouldn't that suggest that most of Ottawa's warming is urban heat island?
1: Yeah, that's an urban heat island effect, but there's also another issue too. <laughs> uh, a-, a number of years ago, Anthony Watts, a researcher, uh, who has the great blog, What's Up With That? Uh, got a bunch of volunteers together with some other folks and they went around and looked at where were the thermometers located? And they found that that the, uh, I think it's the uh, Natural National Climate, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the US organization, uh, that monitors these uh, these thermometers. Uh, they found they monitored, they audited every thermometer in the us and found that eighty percent of them did not meet the standards of the of the measuring agency because they were located in areas next to buildings, next to air conditioners, next to parking lots. And many of these structures had grown up around the thermometers over time. And so you get this artificial warming effect from buildings, uh, whereas, as you say, and that's that may have been what happened in Ottawa. Maybe the thermometers are located in areas that became uh, heavily built around, it raising the temperature versus a small community, which is less likely. So there's a lot of factors that can uh, impl- that can impact the recording of temperature. Uh, it is true we've had a general warming. I would agree with that since about 1880.
0: But which is, again, good. Which is good.
1: Which is good. <laughs> it's it's absolutely good for people and doesn't uh, doesn't uh, affect the 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 climate. You know, it's not it's not driven by our greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, would you think it's mainly a solar effect? Is that is that the major? Well, I,
1: I do think so. I think uh, again, and I repeat things that other scientists have written in my first two books. I discuss that. Uh, there are a number of scientists that uh, think that it it has effects. Uh, we have a number of cycles going on. Uh, we could get into cycles for a minute if you'd like. Uh, Earth yeah. is driven by Earth is driven by long term, uh, medium term, and short term cycles. Uh, the long term cycles are typically called Milankovitch cycles. I think he's made, most theories think that that his theory is right. From Milutin Milankovitch, a Serbian astronomer who took a look at what was going on with the tilt of the earth's axis, uh, the precession of the earth's axis, we're sort of like a top, and then what's going on in our solar system and our orbit with respect to the sun, uh, Mm -hmm. the tilt of that orbit and how far we are from the the earth or from the sun. And so those factors are very long cycles, they're 20,000 to 100,000 years, but many scientists believe that they have caused the ice ages uh, which are typically uh, 20,000 years long or so, uh, or 40,000 years long, uh, even longer than that. Earth goes in, actually, these, I think they're about 90,000. Matter of fact, we usually have about 80 or 90,000 years of cooling and then about 10,000 to 20,000 years of warming.
0: So that would, a... Wouldn't that mean that we're near the end of the current? We, could,
1: we could be at the end of the current cycle. But these, these uh, planetary effects, uh, create the long-term cycles and the ice ages. Then there are medium-term cycles. Uh, and uh, Dr. Singer and others have written about those, which are typically a 1,000 or 1,500 years long. And we get a, a change of about a degree or two. But these, uh, we think, created the medieval warm period 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, the little ice age uh, when it was cooler, about uh, five or 600 years ago, today's warming. And those they think are, are due to cycles in the sun. And then we have short-term cycles as well. The El Nino Southern Oscillation uh, varies kind of erratically every, every three to five years or so. and uh, happens in the South Pacific. We have cycles in the, in the Northern Pacific, the Atlantic, the Indian Ocean, all over the earth that are changing Earth's temperatures by a half a degree to a degree over uh, 50 to 60 year cycles. And so these temperatures are, are changes are going on all the time. They've been going on for for tens of thousands of years. And yet we have people saying, oh, my gosh, this, this <laughs> one degree rise is a catastrophe. <laughs> uh, it isn't. And and it is not abnormal in any way.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's a scientist at the Polkovo Observatory near St. Petersburg. His name's uh, Abducemetov. This is his last name, Habavilo Abducemetov. Took me a while to practice saying that. (laughs) Anyway, he, he looks at cycles in the sun and he says, and maybe you can tell me if you think this is realistic, that we're approaching a grand solar minimum around 2060 when all the cycles hit rock bottom at the same time. And he said conditions could return to what we had in the 1700s when the Thames River froze a meter thick. Do you think that's a possibility?
1: Uh, it is a possibility. I really couldn't comment on how accurate it is, but we have had a number of scientists uh, for the last few years that are predicting a period of cooling because of solar activity. And so we'll just have to see how that goes. But but you're mm-hmm. right, the, the Thames River froze solid uh, during the Little Ice Age uh, 500 years ago or so. and And for the last century, and they, they used to have a, a thing called a frost fest in London. Yeah. They, they would uh, build sheds out on the frozen Thames River and have horses and wagons riding by over the river. You can't do that anymore. For the last century, it has not frozen solid at London. Yeah. And so this is another uh, a natural a cycle that is occurring all the time. And these, uh, I think the evidence shows these are what drives earth temperatures, uh, not your neighbor's SUV.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, one thing, Steve, that I've noticed a lot of is this use of 1984 newspeak. I mean, they keep calling it carbon pollution, you know, and even the people on the right of the political spectrum are doing this, too. I mean, surely CO2 is the opposite of pollution.
1: (laughs) Well, it is. Yeah, I just I just wrote an article which was uh, published in Master Master Resource. I'm trying to remember the title of it. I think it was a. carbon language error on a global scale. Mm-hmm. And, and right, we've got everybody talking about uh, carbon this and carbon that and carbon pollution. And, and they, a, a, they mean carbon dioxide. They don't mean carbon. Carbon dioxide and carbon are two completely different substances.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, calling uh, uh, carbon dioxide carbon is like calling uh, uh, salt chlorine or something. Yeah.
0: They're, or they're water. Just, they're calling, just water hydro- calling water hydrogen.
1: <laughs> yeah, water, hydrogen, and you're right about uh, about uh, carbon dioxide and um, and pollution. You know, if so, what is the reason for calling carbon dioxide a pollutant? If the reason is because it uh, causes global warming and it's emitted from our industry, well, then we ought to be calling uh, water pollution as well, because, yeah. uh, for example, when you burn. And when you burn methane, natural gas, you produce two water vapor molecules for every carbon dioxide molecules. And as anybody who has studied uh, uh, the theory of uh, man-made global warming knows, uh, water vapor is Earth's dominant greenhouse gas. It causes somewhere between 90, 70 and 90% of Earth's greenhouse effect. And it's emitted by our industry. Therefore, we should start calling water pollution. Yeah. I mean that's that's how I, this is. It would be a bizarre result. Uh, carbon dioxide is uh, plant food. It's it's essential for life on Earth. Uh, all uh, what is it? The top forty-five food crops of the world that that uh, produce ninety-five percent of our of our food all grow bigger and faster with higher levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. There have been hundreds of peer-reviewed papers written that point this out. And so we should have another term for it. <laughs> but pollution is, is the wrong wrong term.
0: Yeah, yeah. Tell you a funny story. Here in Canada, when they were in opposition, the conservatives and they they're in opposition again now. But when they were, they were criticizing then Prime Minister Paul Martin for having added carbon dioxide to the list of toxic substances under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. And yeah. but And it's funny, because when they added CO2 to this list of toxic substances, they put a little note beside it. This is not a toxic substance. And you say, (laughs) so so why is it in the list of toxic substances? Because then they could justify regulating it under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act you know so i mean it's all just a, a stupid joke anyway so here we go we're going to come back right after the commercial uh, i my guest today is the author of the new book green breakdown the coming renewable energy failure just released last month so stay tuned we'll be right back Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. This is Jodi O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient.
1: Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25.
0: America Out Loud news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk League. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. I'm back with Steve Gorham. He's the executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America. And he's written a new book, which we're advertising strongly on this show, Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. It was released last month. But let's jump over to a new topic. Let's jump over to wildfires. Okay, California's wildfires. Oh, my God, it's caused by global warming. Is that true?
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Wildfires have been become uh, a big named disaster over the last five years or so by the climatists, if you will, the people that, that are worried about man-made global warming. And so every time there's a fire, they they get on the uh, get on the horn and say this is is caused by our emissions. Earlier this year, we had uh, in the United States we had uh, some some uh, smoke coming in from Canada with all the fires you guys had up in Canada. And uh, California, for many years, uh, Governor Newsom has been complaining about, uh, uh, he he blames man-made warming for California's wildfire problem. Yeah. Uh, The problem with all this is that it it doesn't really make any sense. Again, we've had uh, maybe a couple, three or four tenths of a degree warming in the last 30, 40 years, and to believe that that is causing all these fires is crazy. In the case of California, Uh, It is true that uh, 10 of the top 20 fires in the last 10 years in terms of damage uh, have occurred in California. Uh, But the question is, what is causing these? Uh, A commission, the Little Hoover Commission in 2018, did a study and they said there's been a century of fire suppression in California. They also went on to say that fire is a natural way that forests remain healthy. And if you stop all these fires, you end up with a lot of dead trees around and other problems. In addition, timber harvesting is down 65% since 1980 in California. The U.S. Forest Service, also in 2018, uh, estimated there were 147 million dead trees in California. Wow, that's
0: more more than the number of people there, isn't that?
1: Yes, it is, quite a bit more, from disease and other factors. And so... When you get one of these fires, they just they just grow astronomically, they're very hard to put out. But uh, there is other evidence that says, okay, we've had this burning in California, but could it be global warming? Uh, this evidence comes from NASA, National Oceanic and Space Administration. They actually look, look down on the earth with satellites and they record all of the burned area every year mm. on the earth. Every August we have about ten thousand fires burning across the world and so NASA tracks this and about two years ago they put out a study saying that the global burned area has been declining now for about fifteen years. it's wow. down about it's down about twenty percent okay, so wait a minute so so if the global burned area has been declining it's down twenty percent how can it be going up in in uh, in California from climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, sim- similarly, in, in Canada, we have the number of fires has been down over 20 years. I think the burned area, though, is up about 8%. So there's been a little bit of an uptrend there. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, the global figures say this can't be from climate change. This is this is something that's uh, heavily influenced by what people do, by forest management. Uh, and so I- that's what we need to go after. We need to be managing our forests if the governor of California thinks that uh, everybody can drive an EV and change their light bulbs and then all the forest fires will go away, well, that's, that's <laughs> tell me another fairy tale.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It strikes me that to a certain extent, the government are responsible for the forest fires because they're not properly maintaining the forest and they're not doing what nature would do, namely getting rid of a lot of this dead underbrush. So when they blame climate change, isn't that just a cop out? I mean, they're just. It is. Good. They're not doing their in,
1: job another way. <laughs> it's an excuse. You're right. And as a matter of fact, there are a number of laws in California. As I understood, is it's very difficult to even build a road through your property. If you're a private landowner, you have to get all kinds of permits. Environmental groups have put those in. And so people even have trouble clearing the wood from their own properties. But you're right. Uh, a global warming has become an excuse for everything. It's not only the government, it's the utilities as well uh we have utilities now every time there's there's a little bit of a heat wave in the summer they say well you got to shut off all your air conditioners you got to shut off your, unplug your evs uh you know we've got we've got uh, these dangerous weather and uh oh, yeah. we're, hey we're not responsible for keeping the power on <laughs> <laughs> you know we can't <laughs> cope yep. with this man-made warming you know it's it, it has become a big excuse uh, no matter well, what the disaster might be
0: well not only that it strikes me that they're doing the opposite to what they should do. I mean, let's say you're in a massive ocean liner and there's a big storm approaching and the captain says, man, the lifeboats. You say, what? I want to stay in the big solid ocean liner. So surely if there were an increase in extreme weather and there isn't from what I see, but if there were, you would want to have more coal, more oil, more natural gas, more nuclear, not less.
1: Well, you're right. It's kind of crazy. And some have pointed out that the environmental groups want all these intermittent weather dependent sources, right? Let's all switch to uh, wind turbines. So we got to have the wind blow. Let's switch to solar. So we've got to have to have sunshine. At the same time, they're saying, well, the weather is getting more extreme. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, doesn't right. any, that, doesn't, that doesn't make any sense at all. You want the stuff that's reliable. That's what you want. And, and, you know, and I could see, hey, you know, we got a hurricane come along and knocks down power lines. That is a valid excuse to say your power's out. But don't tell me it's too hot. I mean, it's your job to to produce power when it's hot or when it's cold. Don't tell me that that we can't handle it anymore. That, yeah. That's just a cop out.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's insane. And I understand there's a lot more deaths in cold seasons than warm. Anyways, so yeah. you know, is that true?
1: And it, well, I always love to ask audiences. Okay, so which is which is better for people: warm climate or cold climate? And usually they get the answer right. The answer is warm climate. And if you look at things like uh, the flu season, according to the uh, World Health Organization, the flu season in the Northern Hemisphere is about October to March during our cold months. In the Southern Hemisphere, it's about May to August during their cold months. Uh, I've looked at many nations and the COVID infection rates. And for every nation I've checked, more people have gotten COVID during the cold months than the warm months. Uh, more people get sick in the winter months. Uh, for every nation on earth, there've been many, many studies from every nation on earth, more people die uh, during the cold months than the warm months because the cold weather affects the respiratory and circulatory systems, all that. A guy by the name of Phalagas did a study in 2009 where he looked at nations in both the Northern and Southern hemisphere. He found that to be true. So the bottom line is, if we have a little moderate, uh, a little bit of warming like we've had, and uh, we have less people die, (laughs) yeah, it's actually actually better for people. And I always like to say, well, and by the way, where do people retire? Uh, They all retire to Ottawa or Alaska, right? No, 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 (laughs) no, no. no. If if they're in the U.S., they want to retire to Florida or Texas or Arizona, but don't they know how foolish that is? Our own U.S. government says warm climates are dangerous. I mean, it's... It's, it's just loony how crazy this has gotten to be in so many aspects.
0: Yeah. Well, you'd laugh. I used to work in the House of Commons as a science advisor. And one day, somebody from the World Bank came to brief the MPs on this incredible catastrophe that was coming. And my MP couldn't make it. So he sent me instead. And I guess I didn't realize you're not supposed to be giving awkward questions to the World Bank. <laughs> anyway, he showed a map of productivity of the Earth you know, how much forest cover and and crops there were in the year 2050. And he was pointing to all these problem areas. And I put up my hand and said, oh, it looks like we can farm right to James Bay now, maybe even Hudson's Bay. And uh, you're speaking to a group of Canadian MPs. So that's great, right? (laughs) Is <laughs> dead silence. They don't want you to see that. I mean, warming is good, especially for Canada.
1: Well, it is. Yeah, you got to start a group, Canadians for Global Warming. That's a- <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, we're always so well, independent of that. Wind and solar now are the cheapest form of energy. I mean, is that true?
1: No, that isn't true. It's uh, uh and you're and there are many, many headlines on that. It is true that that the the cost of a, a wind system or a solar system has come down by about 50% in the last decade or two, and uh, they're approaching natural gas, the cost of the system. But the, these, when they talk about these costs, they're talking about marginal rates, the cost of producing one unit of electricity. But there's much more to providing reliable electric power, which has to be on all the time. And so you have to take a, a look at real world examples. And one graph I like to I love to produce is a graph that plots the wind and solar capacity of a nation, and this is a graph of, of European nations on the vertical axis and the residential electricity price on the horizontal axis.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, if if the if wind and solar were the cheapest, the nations that would have the most wind and solar would have the lowest electricity prices, right? Yeah, but that is you see exactly the opposite. The nations that install the most intermittent renewables, wind and solar, have the highest electricity prices. And that's because of two factors. One is they have to build a transmission out to remote locations to all of these uh, sources of wind and solar that aren't very concentrated. But second, they have to deal with intermittency. And two big examples, the prices in Denmark and Germany, the electricity price is roughly triple the price in the United States or Canada. Then you see a similar thing in the United States. I provide a little different graph, which lists the 12 leading wind states in the U.S. And it, it uh, graphs their 14-year percent price increase. In other words, how much has have electricity rates gone up in the last uh, decade and a half? And there's a line across the center, which is the national average increase. And our electricity prices in the United States are up about 27% in the last 14 years which is pretty good. It's a little bit less than inflation. But eight of the 12 wind states have prices ranging between uh, about 35 and 70%. So so the price of electricity in wind states is rising faster than the national average. Again, that is because uh, because of transmission buildouts and because they have to account for uh, the intermittency and handle that. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the data, wind and solar are not less expensive. They are more expensive.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we have to end in about 14 minutes. So I'm hoping we can spend the remainder on your new book, The Coming okay. Green Breakdown. OK, now, what do you mean by a green breakdown? I mean, that sounds pretty deadly.
1: Right. So the world is is embarked on a crusade. Well, I should say the the wealthy part of the world is embarked on a crusade to get what is called a net zero by 2050, that's typically the date. Net zero means, uh, by the way, we emit carbon dioxide from everything we do, our transportation, our homes, our industry. uh, Even even every person, we breathe out two pounds of carbon dioxide a, a day as we burn sugars in our bodies. But the idea is we're gonna reduce or eliminate all these emissions of carbon dioxide from homes, industry, transportation. And what we can't reduce, we're gonna try and capture. So that is the green plan, the net zero plan. But that is not going to occur. That is that is more than a reach out. That is more than a wish and a prayer even. It's just, it's it's uh, hugely impossible to do. And uh, what it's going to mean as we pursue this goal, and we're already seeing some of this, four big problems. The first is higher uh, electricity prices, higher energy prices. Uh, we're already seeing this Uh, where people are putting in wind and solar. Uh, The biggest example is is California, for example. Uh, Green California's electricity prices in the last three years passed up all of New England to become the second highest in the nation besides Hawaii. And California's prices are about double any other Western state. And that's because of the green policies they're putting in. The second big thing we're going to see is electricity blackouts as a result of these net zero programs. Uh, wind is intermittent, solar is intermittent. Uh, And the more wind and solar we put in and we try and remove uh, coal, natural gas and hydropower, the more we're gonna make our grid unstable. Uh, Let me read you a quote from uh, Federal Energy uh, Regulatory Commissioner, Mark Christie. Okay. Uh, he, He testified in front of the United States Senate Uh, about three months ago, he said, quote, I think we're headed for dire consequences, potentially catastrophic consequences in the United States in terms of the reliability of our grid. And he went on to say that we're closing coal too fast. In some cases, we're closing natural gas too fast. And uh, these are the things that keep the lights on. And so if you don't, what you have to do is keep the traditional plants around keep the traditional plants around coal and natural gas, and you have to run them at reduced utilization. So you run about uh, 20 or 30 or 40% of the time to make up for intermittency. And so the price the price goes up, but then if you decide, well, I'm not gonna keep these plants around, then you end up with blackouts. Mm-hmm. And and we're gonna see more and more of those. We, we've already seen those and that's part of this green failure. We've already seen those, uh, February of 2021 in Texas, we had lethal blackouts. Uh, electric power was off for 72 hours for more than four and a half million people. And estimates are as high as 700 people died uh, during that debacle. That is, that is more than just about all the hurricanes that hit the United States. That's really a severe situation. Mm-hmm. We've had black, blackouts in Oklahoma, blackouts in California. And we're going to get more of these as we put in intermittent renewables.
0: Yeah. Do you think Jay Lair was right when he said that we have to have this happen over and over and over before people wake up? I mean, are you that pessimistic or do you think I'm, that pretty,
1: that- I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic. <laughs> I, I would I tend to agree. I think people are going to learn the hard way. Uh, we have the the Northeast of the United States is very ripe for this problem. Uh, utility bills are also already up to more than $1,000 in the winter. For electricity and gas, or, or for uh, uh, oil heating for uh, many of the people there, uh, and they're short of uh, natural gas. And uh, if we get a very severe winter, they're going to have big blackouts. Mm-hmm.
0: If the media went out of their way to say, oh, no, no, this wasn't caused in any way by wind power, then they blamed it on other factors. And I know there were other factors, yeah. but surely the failure of wind was a major contributor.
1: Yeah, well, that's what they were saying about Texas, because we had a couple failures. Uh, First off, the wind and solar only put out about 3% of their rated output. Uh, Mm. And and they're up to as high as 20% in the summer. So, uh, okay, fine. They only put out 3%. We were expecting them not to put out much. And then we had some freeze-ups. And so a bunch of the gas plants weren't getting gas, either the gas-fired utilities and so that uh, that uh, had there were a whole bunch of problems with that Texas thing. But you can't you can't build a system on wind and solar if you get 3% of your weighted out your rated output in cold weather. It's just not mm-hmm. possible.
0: Well, it strikes me also that there would be huge inefficiencies in the backup because I'm looking at this graph that you sent me on hourly wind generation and it yeah. varies from oh gee, maybe uh 150 megawatts to over 8,000, 10,000 megawatts. So with that variation, your backup stations have to go up and down and up and down and up and down. I mean, surely that makes them very inefficient.
1: It does, yeah, they run, they're very expensive then. They also put out other pollutants, the stuff that's real pollution and not carbon dioxide, but you get more sulfur dioxide. It's sort of like a car if you're in, if you're in stop and go traffic, you put out more pollution from a car tailpipe than if you're just sailing along. Uh, And at high speed, the same thing with plants, you're running them up and down and and you're actually creating more sulfur dioxide, nitrogen uh, dioxide, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. It it is. And it's also very expensive because uh, as you penetrate more and more wind and solar and you try and get to 100 percent wind solar net zero, you have to keep all these other plants in a uh, running backup. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're not putting out power, but they're ready to turn on in any instant to keep the grid up. And so it's very expensive. And now you've doubled your your infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And not only the new wind and solar, but you keep all the old plants around also. And again, California is a perfect example. Uh, Their electricity is up 70% in the last 14 years. And they're getting greener. And it's going to go a lot, lot higher. So uh, again, this is another reason people are going to push back. But there's two more big impacts in the green breakdown. One is less freedom. Uh, We have many states and governments uh, around the world that are uh, intent on banning gasoline vehicles. You must buy an electric vehicle. So your freedom disappears there. And then the other thing is, there's, there's a lot of folks saying, well, you gotta put in heat pumps, you gotta put in electric appliances, get rid of your gas stove, get rid of your gas water heater. And a lot of people don't wanna do that because gas is typically cheaper. Uh, we had the uh, we had the uh, uh, Restaurant Association of uh, California uh, sue the city of Berkeley, who put in the first ban on natural gas and new construction, and they won. They won in the court, said uh, that you can't restrict the energy that's going into your into your uh, construction. Uh, so I think people are going to push back there. And then the fourth big issue is transnational energy shocks like we've seen in Europe. Uh Europe became, in the last decade, very dependent on on natural gas and intermittent wind and solar. And then uh, two years ago, and this last year, uh, they were very short of of electricity. Uh, When the embargo came in Russia, they were very short of natural gas. And so today, we still have the price of natural gas double what it was two years ago. The price of electricity is three to four times as high as as what it was two years ago. And this has impacted their standard of living in a very big way. Mm -hmm. So the the green breakdown means four issues. Higher energy prices, electricity blackouts, uh, less freedom uh, for your appliances and your cars, and transnational energy shocks. And I'm I'm predicting people are going to uh, demand a return to low-cost, reliable energy. We'll have Mm -hmm. to see.
0: And it's funny because the Europeans say, oh, well, this problem with energy after the Ukraine war started, is evidence that we need to have more wind and solar power. <laughs> like <laughs> like they're, double down, they're doubling down on what's causing the problem in the first place. I mean, surely what they're saying is absolutely backwards.
1: Yeah, well, publicly they still say that, but their actions are changing a little bit. For example, uh, coal-fired power output is up 20% from a couple of years ago. Germany restarted 27 coal-fired power plants They've just announced uh, new uh, oil and gas uh, leases in the North Sea, England has announced. And they've also ordered 25 liquefied natural gas terminals. And these are our facilities where a tanker comes in, unloads natural gas, puts it into, into the nation. Uh, so these are all around Europe uh, so that they can get gas from the United States and Qatar and other locations. So mm-hmm. there appears to be a retreat from green energy. There's also some uh, talk about restarting and, and going into nuclear power again as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those, these are sensible programs uh, to move along the way. If they don't do this and they keep trying to go wind and solar, they're going to have more and more of these shocks.
0: Yeah, yeah. And as I say, they're they're blaming the fact they don't have enough wind and solar <laughs> for the cause. Yeah, so totally backwards. It's like Alice in Wonderland. You know, yeah, it is. It, it strikes me that, you know, in the appendix of 1984, that book by George Orwell, the, yeah. um, the, the appendix was on newspeak, where, in fact, what they say is the opposite of reality. And it sounds like that's exactly what's happening here.
1: Yeah, it is pretty remarkable what's going on. I mean, in England, they've, they the uh, uh, Englanders were getting uh, uh, several thousand dollar winter utility bills oh. and they're telling them, OK, don't shower so much you know, or, or sho- shower with a friend was the other thing they said.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And don't have any kids at all. That's don't funny. have
1: any kids. So that's another one. Yeah. Don't have any kids. I don't know. Nope. You know, it, 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 we've gotten into this uh, superstition in a big way and people refuse to let it go. It is going to take a lot of shocks. People are going to have to learn the hard way as, as a former, uh, your former uh, mate Jay Lair said, and uh, yeah. it, it's it's just unfortunate.
0: We have just about a minute to go. Can you tell us what your plans are for the future? Are you, do you think you'll write a fifth book or is this a little too early?
1: It's a little early. You know, it's a mountain to write one of these books. This took me two years and a lot of work and, uh, and, uh, but it is doing very, very well. It's, it's, uh, became number one on Amazon a couple of times in the last two weeks, number one in the energy category, not, not overall, but, uh, but, uh, that's, that's pretty good. And, but anyway, uh, uh, so people can find us at Amazon. Uh, there's also eBooks on uh, Google and Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. And um, what's the other one? Um, anyway, and then uh, they can also get them from our website, Steve G-O-R-E-H-A-M G-O-R-E-H-A-M.com. I'll send them a signed copy. Okay. But you know, If you have a gasoline car, you have a gas stove. If you uh, use electricity, you really ought to get this book and see the battle that's going on and how this uh, this system is all going to break down.
0: So my guest today has been a master's of electrical engineering. Okay, so that's important to know. MBA from University of Chicago, 30 years experience at Fortune 100 and private companies in engineering and executive roles, and author of this new book, Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. So Steve, thanks so much for being on my show today.
1: Thank you, Tom. Anytime.
0: Okay, great. So this is Tom Harris with my guest, Steve Gorham, signing out from the other side of the stage.